And I'd like to welcome you to episode 318 of the SBTA Compliance Report. The SBTA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things compliance-related. Where I'm pleased to announce a new service offering, which is a three-step process designed to provide a background and messaging for anyone in the FCPA compliance and ethics product or services space, which will allow you to get your product or service to market to a compliance officer. I work with you to help understand your product to develop a message. And uh, part two is sponsoring my one-month series of podcasts to get your name out into the compliance space in the broadest way into the widest market currently available in the compliance field. Step three is to provide training and ongoing support for your trail sales team around the message to be used in marketing to compliance. If you'd like more information, please contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have with me one of my favorite people in compliance, Erica Salmon-Byrne. She is an EVP at Ethisphere, and she's here today to visit with us about the 2017 World's Most Ethical Company Award honorees that were announced last week in New York City. Uh, the uh, award is given annually by Ethisphere uh, to companies who have a very wide range of ethical policies, procedures, actions, and actually do compliance and ethics in their companies going forward. It's a fascinating podcast where she details the ethics quotient that Ethisphere looks at, details a little bit about methodology, and the type of information that Ethisphere has been able to develop in 10 years of having this award. Also, she makes it quite clear uh, that these companies are more profitable on average than the S&P 500. So once again, it shows that good compliance is good for business. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I am extraordinarily pleased to have with me one of my favorite people in compliance, Erica Salmon-Byrne and she is the EVP at Ethisphere. She and I are both contributing editors for the SCCE blog, and I am really excited to have her on because she's going to visit with us about one of the uh, really events that the compliance profession looks forward to annually, which is the announcement of the world's most ethical companies honorees from Ethisphere. So, Erica, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. It's, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. So, uh, in spite of a major snowstorm in New York City, Ethisphere <laughs> had its um, annual conference, had its annual dinner honoring the uh, world's most ethical companies, 2017 world's most ethical companies, yep. and uh, the um, pictures and social media were just great. Uh, there's a, a great resource on your website uh, about the entire uh, process, procedure, and honorees. And I just wanted to uh, see if I could maybe uh, go through one of the things that I continually tell people about is uh, not the uh, really the names of uh, the specific companies, but really what it means in terms of good ethics is good business. And on your homepage, you've got this fabulous chart which is entitled Ethics is a Measurable or the Measurable Differentiator, and you list performance yep. of um, the 2017 honorees vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, S&P 500. So uh, perhaps you could uh, take it from there. 
Sure, absolutely. And yeah, we did have a wonderful celebration in New York um, in spite of Winter Storm Stella. And there were only about a handful of Stella-related jokes, some very bad Marlon Brando impersonations. Um, but uh, but it, was a, it was a really uh, fantastic event, as it is every year, and, and we're super grateful to those who, um, who took planes and trains and automobiles, in some cases all three of those, uh, in order to, to be with us. This is something that we've been doing for several years now. You know, the, the folks here at Ethisphere, when we launched the world's most ethical companies list well over a decade ago now, really firmly believed at that time that companies that did business the right way in the long term would outperform their competitors. And the nice place that we're in right now is we actually are starting to get the data to show that, um, which is, is exciting. It's gone from sort of a gut instinct that you have more productive employees and you have lower turnover rates and you have more engaged uh, folks and you have a, a number of, of, of other ways you can spend your money besides on fines and lawyers. Um, and all of those things combined to make you a more profitable and, and long-term sustainable organization. And um, we now have the data to show that, which is great. So what you have on our homepage, and I encourage people to go and take a look, is we took the publicly traded companies that are on this year's World's Most Ethical Companies list. And obviously not everyone on the list is publicly traded because you don't have to be a large publicly traded company um, to be considered for the honor. But we did take the, that segment that is publicly traded. And we have an outside investment firm that compares us to a, a number of different indices uh, to check and see what the performance looks like for that particular group. And so what you have, what we see in this class in particular, is actually an even better return than the S&P 500. And this doesn't include um, anything that happened from the 1st of January through now, right? So um, all of the market activity that happened in January is not reflected in this chart. But what you see is you see over the course of 2013 to 2016, those companies outperformed the S&P 500 by 9%. And so that is, a, that is a statistically significant amount of outperformance. Um, and it's something that we're really excited about because we think that compliance officers can use data like this to make the case inside their organizations to build the most robust and effective program possible. So the, um, one of the things I really wanted to, to maybe take a little bit of a deep dive into is the scoring and methodology, but most specifically mm -hmm. the EQ framework because you've got five components here that, uh, uh, to my mind, are, are absolutely mandatory for a part of an effective compliance program. And I was just wondering if you could walk us through the five and how they relate to uh, scoring and evaluation. Absolutely. Um, and, and so the EQ is something that we've uh, been, we try to, to, to make as much of the, the whole process as data-driven as we can. Um, because to us, you know, having the data to show what your peers are doing in a real measurable way, that's one of the ways that you can advocate for change inside your organization. And so if you look at the EQ, we look at five broad categories. Um, the Compliance and Ethics Program is the most heavily weighted, so that's the largest chunk of the, of the evaluation process. And the categories inside of the Compliance and Ethics component are tied, not surprisingly, to regulatory guidance, such as the sentencing guidelines and, and, and things that are, that are out there. And we were very gratified to see that when the most recent piece of DOJ guidance came out in February, uh, guidance 2.17, that we, our EQ uh, segments track very nicely to what the government is, is looking at there. So, um, so we, you know, we really are tracking both regulatory expectations as well as best practices. So you have the compliance and ethics components. We also look very carefully at governance um, because, you know, to us, the, the question of uh, transparency with stakeholders, board exposure to the business, um, board involvement in succession planning below just the CEO level, getting an understanding of the culture of the organization as the oversight body, 
all of those things play very very prominently into the quality of the, the ethics program or the commitment to ethics inside an organization. So we look at governance practices. We consider culture very carefully. Um, and, and here, you know, this is, a, and I will admit it, it's, it's a, this is a challenge, right, in terms of, of getting an understanding of the culture of an organization. And so what we really look at in the culture segment is we look at three primary components. How are you measuring your culture? So are you tracking it? Um, are you doing an organizational culture survey? Um, are you appending culture questions onto an engagement survey? Are you doing focus groups? Are you asking questions about culture in exit interviews? And if you are, what do you do with that data? Um, so trying to get our, our arms around what the company is doing to measure culture, trying to get our arms around what the company is doing to communicate culture. So are your senior leaders telling personal stories of situations where they have had to make a decision that has an ethical component to it? Um, are you empowering your managers with tools to talk about the importance of an ethical culture inside the organization? And then the last piece is training for your managers, right? If you look at all of the culture survey data out there, there's no question but that your manager or maybe your manager's manager is the most important channel to raise a concern. What we see in our own data in the culture surveys that we've run is that less than 2% of reportable code violations go in through the hotline. And so that means that your managers are absolutely your channel to figure out what's actually going on inside the organization. And yet a tremendous number of managers don't feel prepared to, to address those issues. And a large number of them are not trained on how to create an open door environment or what to do when an employee comes to them with a particular question. So they're just sort of left to fly by the seat of their pants. That's a really um, and so we, we, insight. Yeah, and, and it's I mean it's a huge issue for companies, and so that's a that's a big thing that we um, that we look at when we're thinking about the culture component. So so you know, we get a lot of questions about that one. How do, how on earth can you possibly measure a company's culture from the outside? Very fair question, totally fair question. Those are the three things we look at. Are you measuring it? Are you communicating around it? And how are you empowering your leadership team to be the front line of it? Because that's really what they already are. And then we look at um, your involvement in the community. So we have a component of, of corporate sustainability and, and responsibility. So how are you involved in your community? Are you producing a report that talks about your involvement with the community? Um, are you supporting your employees in community engagement? So really thinking about the corporation as a citizen of the community as opposed to uh, just a corporate entity. And then we look at leadership reputation and innovation. So there's a negative component to that. You know, have you had a DPA? Have you had an MPA? Are you under investigation? Is there a component of your litigation track record that causes the review team to believe that you're a recidivist offender or something along those lines? And then affirmatively, what are you doing? Are you leading in your industry? Um, are you, you know, are you engaged in significant research and development? Um, how are you innovating? That's the smallest component of the of the the uh, weighted methodology, um, but that is something that we look at very carefully when we're thinking about who to put on the list. So, uh, Erica, were there any um, sort of companies that stood out for you who were particularly innovative uh, in the, this year's uh, honorees? Yeah, you know, there are a number of companies who have been on the list for a long time that are doing some really interesting things. Um, Jones Lang LaFalle is a research, is a real estate company, rather, and one of the things they've done for years that I've been strongly encouraging other companies to think about is they produce a report called Ethics Everywhere. You can actually go onto their website and download it. And they, in that report, talk about their trends for the year. Hotline volume calls, open door uh, volume uh, reports, 
substantiation rates, days to close of investigations, sort of all of the, of the metrics, activity metrics um, associated with an ethics and compliance program. They talk about their training statistics. They talk about what they've done over the course of the year. They're very transparent um, in the way that they approach the, the idea of their integrity program. And they do that in part because they see it as a real competitive advantage for them. They use information from the Ethics Everywhere report in RFP responses. They, they really use it to sell themselves as a trusted business partner. Um, and that's something that I, I very strongly encourage companies to think about very carefully. If you, if you don't think you can do it as an external report, at least make sure you're doing it with all your employees, right? Make sure that your employees understand what happens when somebody raises a concern, that the company takes it seriously. Because, you know, once again, what we see in all the survey data around culture, and as you know, Tom, you know, culture is, a, is an enormous focus of mine. I've been writing and talking about this for years. But, you know, what we see in all the culture data is one of the primary reasons that people don't raise a concern is that they don't think anything will happen. Right. It's the it's the George Orwell. Some animals are more equal than others issue. Right. It's, you know, that this idea that, oh, so and so is the highest performing salesperson. So I'm not going to raise the fact that he's been harassing me for years because nothing's going to happen anyway and I'll just lose my job. That's that's something that the compliance officer can combat by increasing the transparency around the process. So that's one thing that that, you know, is, has, has certainly stood out to me and in looking at some of the companies that are on the list this year as far as best practices are concerned. You know, the list is a little smaller this year. Um, part of the reason for that is the standards keep rising, right? Um, you know, one of the things that, that we've been looking at uh, for a couple of years now is, is the idea of um, diversity. And so there are more questions on the EQ this year around the, not just how diverse your current board and leadership team is, but also how you promote diversity. Um, inside the organization. And part of the reason for that is, once again, there's all the business case data that shows that the more diverse your board is, the more diverse your management team is, the better performing the company is, right? That there is a true business differentiator associated with diversity of thought. And so, you know, we've been looking at that. And, and you know, quite honestly, there are a lot of companies out there that, that are very, very good companies that have very, very, very non-diverse boards and management teams, right? Um, and so that's an area that I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of growth in. So you said something there that really struck me, Erica, which was that not only is ethics a measurable differentiator, but I heard you talk about it as a market differentiator. And that mm -hmm. I don't think companies really uh, either understand or, and if they do, they certainly don't talk about it enough in terms of a true market differentiator, which would uh, allow them to have a a greater business profit leading to the measurable differentiator that you show on your two charts. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's something that we always encourage compliance officers to think about, you know, especially if you are in um, a position where you are either a B2C business, right, where you can make an appeal to consumers who are looking, especially millennial consumers, who are looking to make business decisions based on um, the values of the organization that they're buying from or going to work for. We have one of my favorite stories, and unfortunately I can't name the name of the company, but one of our favorites, my favorite stories recently was um, a compliant, the compliance officer, the chief compliance officer at an insurance company called me and told me this story. He was in his office one day and the senior vice president of HR came in and said to him, whatever you do, don't do anything to harm the quality of our ethics program or the fact that we've been a repeat WME winner because I just landed an actuary. I didn't realize that the market for actuaries was super competitive, but she just landed an actuary 
for less money than he could have gotten at another company because he wanted to work at a WME company because he wanted to go somewhere where it matched his values. And this was a you know millennial employee joining the company specifically because he felt good about going to work there. You know, and that's for those for those who were able to be at the gala dinner last week in New York. You know, Senator Bradley was our keynote speaker, and he talked about the idea that the uh, that that a that all of us need a purpose, right? And the comp- and a corporation has a responsibility to think about what their public purpose is, and to think about their public pur- purpose as something broader than just making money. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a, that that piece of it is is one way that you can really make the business case to a potential employee or to a potential uh, consumer that you're a trusted partner, you match their values, you're here for the long term, you're not just looking to make a quick buck and, and harm people. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a, that, that can be a really powerful use for the compliance program in the, you know, and a, a way of showing its value in the absence of something going terribly wrong. And so I would, I would look at it, uh, of course, being uh, a Texan, we look at all things as B2B. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. but I would look at this. It's just as important there. Yeah, yep. Exactly. Absolutely. So if I can do business with a company that's had such an award, uh, the risk profile for doing business with that company, either as a contractor or a consumer, uh, goes down measurably and mm-hmm. that the, you understand that uh, you can rely on them, um, uh, to do business, uh, in such a way. So, uh, uh in a, both on the consumer and B2B side, I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've, we've got so many, and, and Tom, this is part of the reason why um, Ethicure started doing this list in the first place was, you know, we, we've, we have so many examples out there of companies making bad decisions, making short-term decisions and seeing significant reputational harm as a result of it. Right. And you and I could, you and I could spend the next 45 minutes listing them all, right. <laughs> it would take us forever to list them all. And um, the fact of the matter is, is there are a lot of companies out there that are doing really, really good work. And they're doing it without a, a ton of recognition. Um, and so that's that's really what this is about. So, Erica, if a company wanted to consider uh, applying for the award for 2018, mm-hmm. could you uh, tell them how they uh, might start to get ready and what they might expect as part of the process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the starting point for the process is, of course, to to take the survey. Um, and, you know, the, the, you, you go to our website, you click Start the EQ. Um, and you request a link. And one of the things I will very strongly recommend is that you uh, download and print the PDF first and look at it and think about who in your organization owns all that information, right? Because because of the overlap of the categories that we look at, this is not something that the compliance officer can just sit down at, at his or her desk um, and, you know, tap out the answers to it in 30 minutes. It's, um, it is a document, it's a information gathering process that you go through. And to me, that's, the, that's really one of the, the, the easiest obtained benefits of, of taking the survey, um, is the fact that you, it forces you to go and have a conversation with your corporate secretary. And it, and it makes you go have a conversation with your HR folks and to, to have that dialogue, um, inside organizations where those groups aren't always groups that talk to each other. And so that's, you know, that's, that's one of the first things is, you know, take a look at the, at the categories, take a look at the questions and think about how you might potentially answer them, um, for your program's practices. The survey this year will open in mid July, um, and you'll have until the end of November, uh, to complete the process. And so, um, you take the EQ and then you submit documentation that supports your answers. And so it's not, 
you know, it's not just pick the answer that best reflects what you're doing. It's pick the answer that best reflects what you're doing and then show us that you're actually doing it. Um, and, and so those are the, the, the two components. And so, you know, there's a, there's a good chunk of time here between now and July um, to think about, you know, how you might potentially do that and, and, and what some of that information might look like. And, you know, we have a lot of companies who say um, that they actually use the survey every year as informal benchmarking. So they'll take, they'll, they'll open up the survey. Um, we always designate what questions have changed year to year. And so they'll look at the questions that have changed. They'll think about what it means to their program. And then they won't actually apply um, either because, you know, they don't feel like they're ready or something along those lines, but they can still use that process to, to help improve their program. Because every one of the questions, you know, the methodology committee works very hard, um, gives us a tremendous amount of input to make sure that every one of the questions in the survey really does reflect current leading practices. Erica, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but one thing I've really been... Tom, you and I could go forever on this. <laughs> but uh, I've been wanting to ask you, uh, prior to uh, the conference in earlier in March, uh, you guys got to ring the bell at the stock exchange. And I was wondering if you yeah. could describe uh, what that was about, but more, you know, what was the experience like for you? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So that, that particular um, uh, opportunity came to us because we hosted an event at the NASDAQ, um, which was our inaugural diversity forum. As I mentioned earlier in the program, the, the issue of diversity is something that we've been looking at very closely here at Ethisphere. It's obviously something that's very important to me, um, near and dear to my heart, looking at opportunities to uh, increase the diversity of uh, gender and race at the board level in the senior management uh, team level across organizations. And so NASDAQ, of course, has the first female CEO of an exchange. Um, and we had the opportunity to host that event there. And, and about a week before the event, um, we got a, a, an email uh, telling us that the opening bell would be open um, and would we like to ring it? And the answer to that was, of course, uh, you know, um, we would love to ring the opening bell. And, um, and so we got an opportunity to bring a couple of the speakers from the event, uh, female board members, um, folks who have worked in the talent space for a long time, uh, up onto the platform with us, uh, ring the bell to open the NASDAQ. And then my colleague, Ty Francis, and I, had the opportunity to be on NASDAQ's program uh, Behind the Bell, which is their Facebook live feed, uh, and talk a little bit about the research that we've seen and done around the importance of diversity, uh, what it does to improve a company's financial performance, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and we'll actually be coming out in June with the write-up from that event, as well as the research that we've done, um, to really try to help companies think about practically how might they move the needle inside their organization. Eric, I was wondering if uh, anyone wanted to follow up with uh, you on uh, uh, any of your remarks today, if they could email you, and if so, how they might do that. Absolutely. Um, so my email is uh, Erica with a C, dot salmon burn, so that's salmon like the fish and burn like David Byrne of Talking Heads, at ethosphere.com. You can also go to the Ethosphere website. I'm on there. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at eSalmonBurn. Um, and I welcome feedback from anybody who's listening in uh, that has any questions about any of the work we're doing here at Ethosphere. We, uh, we're super passionate about all of this, which I hope has come through. Um, and to me, getting up every morning and, and working to help companies implement more effective programs is a really good way to spend your day. I absolutely agree. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Congratulations again on a fabulous list of honorees this year. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to visit with me. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help the rankings and help us get the word out about this top podcast in compliance. 
Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>